Well, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Um, joy to be with every one of you here at the start of the semester. Let me invite you to find in your Bible Acts chapter 16. And then at some point, we'll also be looking at a portion of Philippians 2, but we'll start in Acts chapter 16. We'll look at these two passages today, Acts 16 and Philippians 2. We have a record of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's first visit to Macedonia and to Philippi. And then Philippians 2, we have his letter to the church that later formed there in Philippi. And I aim to use these two passages to give you what I call a portrait of the end of religious liberty. A portrait of the end of religious liberty. It's a good question to ask uh, here at the start of 2024. Are we seeing the end of religious liberty? In the Western world where we live, uh, it's fair to wonder that. We wonder. For Christians, increasingly, we see the complexities of cultural engagement, articulating the truths of biblical Christianity, the simple, long-held, two-millennia truths of Christianity, especially with regard to things like human sexuality and, and gender alone. Those two things bring conflict and often increasingly even worse. So it's good and right to be concerned and to even wonder, is this the end of religious liberty? We also wonder as evangelicals and debate how we should best respond. How should we live as Christians in this culture and in this society? In recent months, we watch and listen to evangelicals have conversations or worse than that about things like Christian nationalism. We consider an upcoming election in 2024. And all the while, we recognize that our society is experiencing more and more what a recent book calls the great de-churching. Our churches are changing, our society changing. Are we seeing the end of religious liberty? Here in the West, we, we wonder. However, in the rest of the world, we are seeing it. Listen to these facts from the very recent annual World Watch List report that annually lists the 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus. Last year, 2023, almost 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith around the world. Nearly 15,000 churches were attacked or closed. More than 295,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. The top five countries in this year's list where it's hardest to live for Jesus are North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, and Yemen. Yet the fact is that for most of us living in the Western world who worry about or wonder if we're losing religious liberty, the reality is we may never actually go to jail for our faith. But right now, our brothers and sisters in these countries and in many more are in jail all around the world. Are we seeing the end of religious liberty? Well, in the rest of the world, we are or we have seen it. So given this predicament, we might be tempted to despair or certainly be discouraged for the future for Christians to live in society free from restricting trends is discouraging. It is. And while this is not good and we should work to prevent it wherever possible, I want today to offer just a slight adjustment in how we think about this. Rather than only lamenting about what this means for Christians here or around the world, I want us to think of religious liberty as something bigger than just simply the free exercise of religion in our country or in another country. 
For the purpose of religious liberty ultimately is not about the freedom for Christians to practice their faith. It's ultimately not about that. Sure, it includes that, but its purpose as a doctrine includes so much more. So instead of asking, is this the end of religious liberty? What I want to do today is ask, what is the end of religious liberty? Say it again. Instead of asking, is this the end of religious liberty? I want to ask, what is the end? Of religious liberty. One of my favorite uh, television shows uh, for which my entire family thinks I'm odd and strange, but that's nothing new, is a British-UK uh, arts competition show called The Portrait Artist of the Year. Has anybody ever heard of that show or would admit it? A uh, few, few people. Uh, in this show, uh, artists from all over the UK are challenged to paint a portrait of a celebrity in less than four hours. And after that four-hour time, a panel of judges determines which one is, is the best portrait. And what fascinates me so much about this show is how often the portrait itself doesn't take shape in the first hour or the second hour. It doesn't even take shape really until the final minute. So many steps are involved in setting up the canvas, painting the background, before the main focal point of the painting is addressed. And then only after the final, sometimes very slight, finishing touches of shading are applied is when you're able to step back and see the painting as a whole. It's really only then you can judge whether it resembles accurately the person. So to help us to think about the end of religious liberty in 2024, I want to invite you to, to imagine with me that we're going to paint a portrait, and then at the end we'll step back and look at this canvas to see the whole doctrine, perhaps to understand something a little bit bigger. So again, back to my title here, a portrait of the end of religious liberty. So how we're going to go about this is I want to first, if you will, size up our canvas, figure out what size of a canvas by thinking about a definition and asking the question, what is religious liberty? Then we'll paint some background uh, sketches from Act 16. These are going to be broad strokes to set a scene of a culture in conflict with the practice of Christianity that's really not much different from our own and not unlike many cultures around the world. Then we'll spend some time painting the subject itself after the background is filled in from Philippians 2 to give a very specific focal point that defines the painting by thinking about when religious liberty will end. And then finally, we will paint those finishing touches from the remainder of Act 16. And we'll zoom out and consider in full this end of religious liberty. Okay? So first, uh, definition. What is religious liberty? Well, uh, just a brief biblical and historical summary, and it will be brief. Uh, Dr. Kidd, Dr. Bumpers, Professor Wilson, and I gave students on the New England study tour this fall the extended version, uh, far more extensive than I think they were bargaining for, and we probably went to one too many cemeteries and crawled through looking at the graves of Isaac Backus and John Leland and other Baptist proponents of religious liberty. So as fun as it would be to do that here now, at least fun for me and Dr. Kidd and Dr. Bumpers and Professor Wilson, I will give you just a brief uh, biblical and historical summary. Um, that's me joking, by the way. It usually takes students, <laughs> students, uh, <laughs> usually takes students like three weeks in my classes to kind of figure out that I've been cracking jokes all the time, but people don't don't even don't even realize it. So a couple points. First, nowhere in the New Testament do we see anyone coercing faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have coerced faith, could have forced people to believe, but he didn't. 
Point number two, nowhere in the New Testament do we see Christians executing or arresting those who deny faith in Christ. Jesus could have done that and would have been just to do that, but he didn't do it. Instead, we see our Lord Jesus reasoning, instructing, calling to repentance, and inviting people to believe. So not coercing and instead persuading. We see not coercing briefly in one instance in Jesus's Matthew, uh, parable in Matthew 13 of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he indicates that those two things are going to grow together until the harvest, not trying to eliminate them before it's time. We see regular persuading, reasoning, uh, calling people to repentance. All throughout the book of Acts, uh, Paul in Ephesus in Acts 19 spoke, speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading, it says. Acts 28, Paul's in Rome, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to, it says, trying to convince them about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, you know this one, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We, we don't force you, but we implore you. So in some, in the New Testament, Christianity is a faith that doesn't coerce, but persuades. Therefore, it doesn't need a government to coerce to be effective. This conviction, this idea of biblical religious liberty, influenced throughout history a theological and cultural engaging distinctive, especially for Baptists. From the Reformation to England to early America to the present, Baptists have been the ones who've seen, often beyond their own lifetimes, that a couple things. One, the defense of every citizen's right to pursue what they believe or do not believe only exists when the church operates independent of the state. It can't exist in a state-controlled church. It only exists when a church operates independent of the state. These are Baptist brothers and sisters, our forebears, these biblical, seeking to follow biblical Christianity, saw that the state should exist. They weren't anarchists. Um, Christians should relate accordingly to the state, but not ultimately to the state. Looking to Romans 13, let every person be subject to the govern, governing authorities. First Timothy 2, everyone should pray for those who are in authority. But also Acts 5 and 27, after Peter's arrested, he tells the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. So Christians should relate accordingly to the state, but not ultimately. And this is important because when the state can determine the validity or limit of the practice of religion in society, nothing prevents that state from turning to another religion or all religions. So you fight to uphold through the state the principles of Christianity to the exclusion of all of religion. It's only a matter of time before someone else gains control and, and enforces another religion and eradicates Christianity. The state should exist and Christians should relate accordingly, but not ultimately. These early Baptists also saw, number two, the defense of this civil right ensures, most importantly, the proclamation of the gospel for all to either accept or to reject it freely, not to coerce them. Further, it prevents the state from using its sword of civil protection. People should, if they commit a crime, be arrested. But it, it, it prevents the state from using that ability for matters of the soul or the spirit. States should have no jurisdiction over what's going on inside the soul or the heart. Listen to all this again in my brief summary here, summarized so very well in the Confession of Faith of this institution, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Just listen to this definition. A free church and a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men, and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without the interference of, by the civil power. 
If you've never read the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, go Google it and look at the article on religious liberty. It's wonderful the way it's articulated. Uh, it's, it's very helpful. So if this is what religious liberty is, how does it work within a culture in conflict with Christianity? So to answer that question, we now take our canvas, this definition that we've now set up, and we turn to paint that background. And we'll do that by looking now at Acts chapter 16. What's happening in Acts chapter 16, Paul is responding to the Macedonian call to leave where he is and go to Macedonia. And in, the, in Macedonia is the city of Philippi. And this visit so far in Acts 16 had gone very well. Paul and his company arrived in Philippi and on the Sabbath went to a place of prayer and a, met a gathering of women. And among those women was a woman named Lydia who listened intensely to the good news and that they shared about Jesus Christ and she was converted. Then after Lydia, they moved on and another woman met them. And that's where we pick up our story here, starting in verse 16, Acts 16, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. If this sounds like something that could never happen to you, or really probably no longer ever happens, listen again to the picture that's painted here. Paul and Silas had merely engaged the Roman culture with the gospel, helping those who would listen and healing those oppressed by spiritual warfare. Because that work this work of the Spirit overturned an idol of financial profit. They were isolated, misrepresented, and made to suffer unjustly. So remember, while this may never happen to you to this degree, it does happen and is happening right now all around the world to many of our brothers and sisters. Therefore, let's look at how they respond. Look at that next verse, verse 25. About midnight in prison, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, Paul and Silas were wounded and in prison, clearly surrounded by other prisoners. And at this time when they should be sleeping or weeping or tending to their wounds, they sang. Why is it that they sang? And what did they sing? Well, it's clear that they sang hymns of some kind. They sang to remind themselves of the present and future truths that God had revealed to them. They sang to indicate their trust in God regardless of their circumstances. They sang to rejoice in the sufferings that had come upon them for Christ. Paul would write Romans 5.3 that this kind of suffering produces hope. They sang for hope. The hope of theirs was in God, not in their might, not in their friends, not in even yet even in their Roman citizenship. They knew regardless of how this scrape would go 
their ultimate future was safe and secure in God, so they sang. When believers in Christ Jesus think of our future hope like Paul and Silas are doing here, we're not practicing escapism. We're not avoiding reality. Rather, we're setting our gaze on that which is more real, actually, than the present calamity. Yes, their feet and their arms may be in chains, but there's truth more real than their imprisonment. They're actually free, and they know they're free, and so they sang to remind themselves of their ultimate freedom. If you're not tracking with me here, this, let me just remind you that the Bible talks about our faith having an anchor of hope to the future, a future hope, Hebrews 6. And there in the future sits the Son of God, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12. And it's that founder and perfecter of our faith we're told to set our minds, choose what we think about, set them on him, Colossians 3. We're not only to set our minds, but we're also to set our eyes, Hebrews 12. God, through his word, has left a storehouse of information and detail about what is to come at the end. And as much of this is mysterious, to be sure, so much is revealed. He's recorded so much about that which is yet to take place in order to give us assurance and hope, should we find ourselves in prison, so that we know to expect of his return, no matter what is happening to us. This is the very reason why the Bible talks so much about how the world will end. Not so that we can calculate the time and the dates and all these sorts of things, but so that we can have assurance and so that we can have hope. Paul and Silas were able to sing in the face of injustice and the loss of their freedoms because they knew that God is faithful. And in the end, God would make things right, Romans 12. And this is why the background of our painting here in Acts 16 is so important for us living as Christians in a culture that increasingly opposes Christianity. No matter what happens we can sing. And so with that much of the painting done, the background now, I want to shift now and start painting the primary subject with specific detail and how this attitude of hope relates to, remember, the end of religious liberty. So turn with me now to Philippians 2, and we'll we'll pick up there. So to understand what is the end of religious liberty, we need to focus now on when it, when it is, the Bible tells us that the opportunity of religious liberty, the free opportunity for any to come to Christ, will come to an end. Because one day, it will come to an end. Religious liberty, the freedom for people to trust Christ, there's a timestamp on that opportunity, and it will come to an end. Near the end of his life, when Paul was in prison again, he wrote a letter to the Philippian believers. The church that formed after his time in jail in Acts 16 with Silas, became the first church in Europe. The church in Philippi was one with whom he maintained contact and likely would have visited again as they served key supporters of his work. We pick up on that in Philippians 4. He wrote to encourage the Philippians to pursue unity and joy even in suffering. And to that end, at the center of his letter in chapter 2, he gives them a hymn. Singing in prison, now to the Philippians he's giving them a hymn. It's as if he knew that they would need encouragement in singing. So listen to part of his Christ hymn in Philippians 2, just starting in verse 9, 10, and verse 11. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This hymn in Philippians 2 tells of the humbling sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
We see here that God has already exalted Christ Jesus and given him the name Lord. He has already handed all things over to him. As Matthew 11 talks about, he's already put all things under his feet, Ephesians 1, and he's already giving him all authority, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Yet Paul also reveals that a future day is coming when the name of Jesus will go forth and all creatures will bow and confess him as Lord. All creatures will bow and confess him as Lord. And at this time, which Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 simply calls the end, Jesus will finally destroy death and see the complete fulfillment of Psalm 8 when all things are put under subjection to his feet. In the verses describing Jesus' exaltation here, Paul references, interestingly, a statement from Isaiah 45. This phrase, every knee shall bow to God the Father, and ties this hymn into the larger and weightier biblical story. Paul isn't just coming up with this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as something entirely new. He's referencing back to Isaiah 45, and and that's incredibly important. In Isaiah 45, the prophet is crusading against idolatry by vigorously defending the sole uniqueness of God, the God of Israel, the monotheism of the God of Israel. And by ascribing this text to God the Son here in Philippians 2, this not only affirms their Trinitarian equality, God the Son is equal to God the Father in the Old Testament, it shows that Jesus Christ is not a challenge to the monotheistic God of the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one. And this one one God will one day be exalted once and for all, and every knee shall bow. Prophesied in Isaiah 45, attributed to Christ in Psalm 2, Philippians 2, and will happen one day. So until that day, we understand that Christ's exaltation and the subjection of all to him are both things that are already true and not yet complete. Already and not yet. Not until that final day will we see every knee bow. And it's on that day that religious liberty will end. When we talk of religious liberty in the United States, we acknowledge its present fragility with words like threatened, and with calls to defend religious liberty. And as I said, to be sure, as long as we have the freedom of religion in this country, it's worth defending. It's worth acting. It's worth voting. It's worth doing things to defend it. However, should believers find that their liberties are removed or suppressed in the days ahead, we should also recognize that we will not really reach the end of religious liberty ultimately until Jesus returns. On that day, the time of religious freedom will end. The opportunity for anyone to believe will end. Everyone will bow and acknowledge the one true religion and the one true God. This idea of bowing especially conveys the acknowledgement as the Bible regularly recognizes this posture of bowing with concession to the one to whom one's bowing a superior. Think about Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 19. He's told to track the faithful who have done what? Not bowed the knee to Baal. When one bows, one is confessing. This is a posture of submission, a posture of conceding, openly declaring what is true about the one who is superior and exalted. This day of acknowledgement, this day of bowing, it's important to note though, also is universal. Every knee will bow, but it's not universalism. No one will escape participation. Every creature will bow, whether they're repentant or not. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is king, whether out of joy or out of shame. And this is important to know because in the history of Christianity, some have sought to lean on Philippians 2 to say that there is some idea of final universal redemption, universalism. Uh, 
But what I've attempted to show here is particularly by leaning on Isaiah 45. That's not what this is talking about here. It's universal acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord one day, but not universalism, not universal salvation. People will bow, whether in joy for the exalted Christ or in shame that they did not believe in the exalted Christ. So until the end, every day, this is important to remember, is therefore a day of religious liberty. Every day is a day of grace. Every day is a day of liberty. Whether you have cultural or societal religious liberty or not, God is still allowing a time for people to repent. God is still allowing freedom for people to come to him. So think back now to your brothers and sisters in North Korea or Yemen or some of these other countries. How do you imagine that they persevere? They have no temporal hope that their society is ever going to change, that they're ever going to have true religious freedom. How do they persevere? They have to rely on an eternal and future hope. This eternal perspective should provide hope, but it also should serve as a sober warning for us. For the grace of God shows by granting any form of religious liberty on earth is finite. It is going to come to an end. So whatever happens to the state of religious liberty in the United States or other nations, a final end to religious liberty will come with the return of Christ. And at that time, religious liberty will end and there'll be no more hope for the lost. They will be without hope. So with that subject painted, that leads us now finally to consider the end of religious liberty, the true end, as we return now to our portrait for those final touches, enabling us to step back eventually and see the whole thing. So back to Acts chapter 16. We left Paul and Silas in prison. If we know now that a day is coming when religious liberty will end, what therefore is the end of religious liberty? Before we get to Acts 16, just look at verse 11 of Philippians 2. In verse 11 of Philippians 2, Paul says that the universal submission of humanity to the lordship of Christ at the end of time takes place, why? To the glory of God the Father. Bible scholar Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary explains, he says, every knee at this point will bow to him and every tongue will confess him Lord. And this is to the glory of God the Father. The life that Paul calls the Philippians to live is based on the glory of God and salvation through judgment accomplished in Christ's death on the cross. The reigning king who made the heavens and the earth should receive honor and glory forever and ever. The bowing will go to the glory of God the Father, to the one who put forward his son as a propitiation so that God the Father might be the just and justifier of all who fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3 talks about, belongs glory and dominion forever. The glory is due him. He, he is worthy of it. The one who gave us his spirit as a helper to teach and convict John 14 through 16 talks about, and send his children as witnesses to the nations. To him be the glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. He is worthy of that ultimate glory. He is worthy of that ultimate bowing. We pursue religious liberty in the present for the sake of others to be saved before religious liberty is ultimately taken away. To put it another way, the glory of God and salvation through judgment is the end goal of religious liberty on earth. So turn now to Acts 16 in the Philippian jail. Pick up in verse uh, 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your, whole, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Remember this scene in the middle of their singing, an earthquake interrupted. And the upheaval released Paul and Silas from their chains and confines. God is sovereign over all things, and this earthquake is merely a dramatic reminder of his power and control. He was every bit of in control of those chains on Paul and Silas without the earthquake. The earthquake is just God's exclamation point to remind the world that he can and does control all things. Here we see God's power acting not just for the release of Paul and Silas, but as our own Dr. Schreiner says, for the jailers released from others' gods. You see a releasing here physically of Paul and Silas, but you also see a releasing here spiritually of the jailer from his own idolatry. Instead of running for safety, Paul and Silas remained for the safety of their captor. Knowing, knowing that the jailer would receive the death penalty should they escape, they assured him that they had not left. And shaken and afraid, the jailer came to see for himself. Their steadfastness in punishment, even when given the opportunity for freedom, prompted the jailer to ask them that he might escape his own spiritual captivity. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas, they were misrepresented. They were imprisoned unjustly. They shouldn't have been put in jail. It was not fair. It was unjust. They were robbed of their freedoms. They were beaten physically, but they never despaired. Instead, entrusting themselves to their faithful creator, they looked and they sang to God, knowing their captivity, even if it lasted the rest of their lives, was temporary. Even if it left, should lead to death, not eternal. Speaking of paintings, there's a story I've heard of a painter who, in moments of duress whilst painting, stressful trying to get a portrait right or finish a portrait of a person, this painter would call to his wife in these moments of, of deep despondency when painting and just call out and say two words to her, blue pages, blue pages. And she would run in carrying blue pieces of paper and would hand them to him real quickly. And he would open them up and read them and, and throw them on the ground. Um, the person who's having his portrait painter would watch the artist and wonder what in the world is going on. Just finish the painting. Why are you having to call out for blue pages and read them and, and, and continue on? Then after some time, uh, the artist would paint and would get to a, a place of, of um, painter's block and not be able to finish. And you call out again, blue pages, blue pages. And in would rest his rife with a stack of blue pages. And he would open it and read them and, and throw them on the floor. After the painting was done, the one who was sitting for the painting was so curious as to what in the world was going on. And he picked up one of the blue pages and opened it up, and all of them said the same thing. I love you. You're the greatest painter in the world. His wife would bring in this message to him. Paul and Silas would, were able to sit and sing in prison after being beaten because they knew, ultimately, they were not alone. God, as it were, had given them blue pages to help them to persevere, simply saying to them over and over again, I love you. 
with you is the greatest savior of the world. Do you know that that is true for you today? Or certainly could be if you don't know that it is. Jesus Christ came and was abandoned and crushed. Not just by the world, but was abandoned and crushed by God the Father. So that you and I are not abandoned and crushed. Jesus died and rose to give you what you did not deserve. His goodness. His righteousness. He gave, him, gave you himself. I wonder as we're thinking about things like religious liberty, where does this message find you today? Today, you can call out for some blue pages of your own. When you confess your sins and believe in Jesus that is life and death and resurrection, pay for your sins and make you new, God has given you in his word through his son and spirit, personalized blue pages, a limitless supply that you can open and read. I love you. With you is the greatest savior in the world, no matter where you find yourself. This is true for you. It's true for every believer, whether they're in North Korea or Somalia or, or Yemen. The believer's identity is not found in their location, not found in their success, not found in the bleakness of their circumstances or their odds of survival, and not ultimately whether they have found or have religious liberty or not. Their identity is found in Christ. So with our painting now complete, if we step back and look at this portrait of the end of religious liberty, what do we see? Well, we see a hope that one day Jesus will be exalted on earth, even while suffering continues, whether to us or to our brothers and sisters around the world. We see that true faith can't be coerced. The best cultural environment for faith to take root is one where there is religious liberty for all religions. We see a warning that one day true religious liberty will end and all and every knee will bow, whether they want to or not. We see that until then, the good news that Jesus is Lord is shared with reasoning and pleading and compelling while there is still time. We see that it is worth proclaiming Christ even at the risk of security, of safety, financial loss, and rights. Why? all for the glory of God the Father. In all this, we see the end of religious liberty. Let's pray together. Your Father, our faithful King and God, we confess how much we need you to reorient our minds, to right our hearts, to remind us of the things we already know, that you love us and with us is the greatest Savior in the world. Help us to abide in him and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.